0: Well, on the road to Damascus, Jesus tells two of his followers, this is after he's risen, before his ascension, he meets two of his followers on the road to Emmaus, and uh, when he finds them, he rebukes them for not understanding that all the law and the prophets were about him. He says, when you have... The Old Testament in your hand, the scriptures at the time, they testify about me. And then he goes through them and shows them all the places where this is true. He says the same thing a few verses later to the disciples. And then in John's gospel, he rebukes the Pharisees for the same. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness to me. If Jesus taught anything about the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, which were the only scriptures they had at the time, it is that they were about Him. Sometimes this is uh, debated, especially by uh, dispensational theologians who make a very strong and hard distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they'll say, well, the only time, the only time we can say Jesus is in the Old Testament is when the New Testament says so, specifically, like in the Passover or the rock in the wilderness. The problem with that is that Jesus himself has already told us that all of the scriptures from Genesis to Malachi were about him. And so he's given us a warrant. He's given us permission to search for him in those books. And now that's been abused sometimes in history. Nevertheless, just because something is abused, doesn't mean it's not true. And this is an important principle when it comes to interpreting Scripture. Wherever you're reading, a good question to ask is where is Christ in all of this? And there are some places where that's crystal clear. The Passover lamb, Joshua leading the people into the promised land, Aaron and later Zedok, the high priests. And then there are the kings, David and Hezekiah and, and Josiah. The prophet. Elijah and the prophet Isaiah writing about Christ in the servant song in Isaiah 53. There are the Psalms, Psalm 2, 22, Psalm 24. Over and over again we see examples of Christ and what He has accomplished. And and those ones are pretty pretty easy to pick out when you're reading the Old Testament. You know, the the glorious messianic passages and, and the praiseworthy characters. But what about the less savory characters? What about the more ignoble ones, like Samson or Solomon? What about those who are not glorious, but are more tragic heroes who fall? Or what about the villains? Is there anything to be found of Christ in them? Well, if you have your Bible this morning, I would invite you, please, to open it to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 18. And this morning, we're going to look for Christ in, uh, in an unlikely place, but before we do, I'd like to pray together. Second Samuel chapter 18, but before we get there, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. This is a day that you have made, a day that you have given. It is a gift from you. And no matter what the day holds or the week is held, there is reasons for us to rejoice. There are more reasons for us to rejoice than there are for us to be downcast and disheartened. Lord, you've put breath in our lungs, food before us. Lord, you have blessed us by your grace many times, times that we're not even aware of. You've put us on the road to heaven and eternal life. You've reconciled us to Yourself through Your Son. What can man do to me? What can this world do to us, Lord, when You are our God? And so, God, we thank You. And I pray, Lord, this morning that we would get a glimpse of You from Your Word, of Your heart towards us through Christ, of what Your Son has done. Help us, Lord, to see this as we look at your word, which is a testimony to your work. Help me to preach. Help us to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, and we look to you, Lord, with eager expectation. Amen. Well, I said we were going to read 2 Samuel 18, and and we will. uh, We'll look at the entire chapter and then a few verses from the beginning of chapter 19 but chapter 18 is the conclusion of a story and if you want to appreciate or understand the significance of chapter 18 you've got to understand the story behind it you know have you ever gotten a book and you've read the last chapter and ruined the whole book for yourself well we don't want to do that Uh, this is a story that begins all the way back in chapter 13 and, and we're not going to read of course all of it. You can go back when you get home and you can read 2 Samuel chapter 13 through 19 if you want the whole story. But we will look briefly at what those chapters say to get us up to chapter 18. And uh, really it's, it's, a, it's a story of tragedy and of intrigue and of family strife. David, King David, he had a lot of children. And the focus of our attention this morning is on his second son named Absalom. Absalom is significant in the scriptures. In fact, there are six chapters given to him and to his story. That's a lot. It might surprise people when when you go through the scriptures and see how major characters that you hear about all the time have such little real estate in the book. But Absalom has more given to him than Jonah, more than Elijah, more than Isaac or Noah or Samson. He's an important figure in the scriptures. He is the most, next to Solomon, well known son of David. He is described as the most handsome, most beloved man in Israel. He is an excellent speaker and a charismatic leader. Few men in scripture are described in such an illustrious way. And chapter 13 begins, Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister named Tamar. He also had a half-brother, David's oldest son, Amnon. And Amnon was infatuated with Tamar his half-sister, it says he, he longed for her and was so tormented by this longing for her that he made himself sick, for, he was, for she was unmarried, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. That's verse 2. Right in the beginning, you see there are some problems beginning to come up in David's family. Sins and corruptions are creeping in. What ends up happening is one of Amnon's wicked friends. He helps him come up with a deceptive scheme and he takes advantage of his half-sister. And after Amnon does it, it says he despised her with a greater hatred than all of the attraction that he felt for her. The passion that burned in lust now burned in hatred. And his sister pleads with him. She says, please don't send me away. Just take me as your wife. I'll be ruined otherwise. I know what you did was wrong, but to get rid of me would be far worse. What you've done is shameful, but to send me away would only increase my shame. But Amnon doesn't listen. He actually tells his servants, throw her out and bolt the door. He could not have disgraced her any more than he has. He has. He's wronged her almost as wickedly as if he's killed her. Well, David, her father, the king, finds out. And when he does, he gets very angry. We're told very angry in the Scriptures. But, and this is important, he doesn't do anything. A scribal note written in one of the early manuscripts, a copyist who was copying the Scripture, he he wrote a note in the side of it, and he said this, David was very angry, but he would not hurt Amnon because he was his son. I mean, David was the king. It was his sworn responsibility to uphold justice in the land. But because he was dealing with his son, he let his sin slide. He doesn't do what a king is supposed to do. He doesn't act according to the word. He is supposed to uphold he overlooks this evil that he was responsible to address. And so Tamar goes to her brother Absalom. And he is outraged. He's out, he's, he is very angry too when he hears what his brother did. And he is doubly outraged at the inaction of his father. And, and this sets into motion the events that we're going to see. Absalom makes a decision. He says, I'm going to avenge my sister both on Amnon and on that derelict father of mine, David. This is a spark that ignites a fire David is about to endure. For two years, Absalom fumes as he he nurses his hatred towards his brother. And for two years, Absalom plots his revenge. And for the sake of time, I'll avoid the details, but after a tense exchange with his father, Absalom has all of his brothers come to his hometown of of Belazar for a celebration are going to have a feast. And Absalom tells his servants who are putting on the feast, when Amnon comes, and all the princes come, when Amnon comes and he begins to drink and he gets drunk, when that happens, I want you to go and to strike him down. Do not be afraid. Be courageous and valiant. And that's exactly what happens. The princes come, they begin to make merry. When they do, the servants slay Amnon. And everyone runs away to hide, including Absalom. He leaves Israel, he gets out of David's jurisdiction, he refuses to come back. And then we find an interesting verse, one that almost seems out of place. Gives us a hint of what this story is about. It says, David mourned for his son day after day. But the son he mourned for was not Amnon, it was Absalom. It says the spirit of David longed to go out after Absalom. In chapter 14, another character enters the stage, Joab. Joab was the general of the army. And and seeing David's heart go out to Absalom, he comes up with a scheme of his own to trick David into bringing Absalom back. Absalom, once returned, convinces Joab to get him an audience with David, his father, the king. A solemn scene unfolds in the throne room of David's palace. Absalom is standing before the king in silence. He bows down to the ground before his father. He takes the posture of a servant. but The king stands up, walks over to his beloved son, throws his arms around his neck, and begins kissing him. David was waiting for this day. He longed to be reunited with his son. And when it happens, he cannot contain his joy. And the narrative ends rather abruptly at the end of chapter 14. It's as if the curtain closes and you think, wow, the story is over. What a happy ending. Tamar is avenged. The prodigal son returns. David and Absalom embracing one another in the throne room. Happy ending. And it looks good, right? It's not the end it's just an intermission curtain opens again act two now absalom in chapter fifteen he's riding in a chariot with fifty armed men running in front of him you know yelling out make way make way for absalom the son of the king he approaches the city walls and he enters into the gates and he mixes with the common folk his charisma and his good looks attract people to him He becomes a man of the people And he begins to hear them, we're told. He hears their pleas. He hears their problems. He's listening to the injustices that they endure unanswered by the king. Among them, Absalom raises his voice and laments out loud. So you've got all of these people who want justice from their king. They're not getting it. They can't get to David. And so Absalom, he starts to say loudly, Oh, if only I were king, I would hear you. I would hear you from whatever tribe you came from. I would hear you from whatever clan you were in. You would have my ear. I would show no partiality. I would show no favorites. Even though I am from the uh, tribe of Judah, I would be the king of Israel, and you would receive justice from my hands. And so you see what's happening here. All the people are coming to have the wrongs against them set right. David is he's not doing it for whatever reason. Too busy, can't hear them, not there. Tensions begin to grow. People begin to murmur. He only cares about those Judites from his own tribe. And then there in the fomenting descent, fanning the flames, is Absalom. He assumes the posture of the king in the market. He's making promises to the people. He's kissing their hands. He's winning their hearts. He's lamenting the failure of his father to dispense justice. And in light of what happened to his sister, he's not pretending. This is a heartfelt lament. David should have dealt with Amnon, both as a father and a king, but he didn't. Absalom despairs publicly. There is no justice in Israel, nor will there be, so long as David remains upon the throne. The people listen to him. Their dissent begins to boil over and men from every tribe and corner of Israel join themselves to Absalom's conspiracy. This point has been six years from the time Amnon was murdered. And now Absalom's plan of vengeance is finally taking shape. Now it's time for him to settle accounts with his father, the king. Absalom mounts an overthrow of his father's kingdom. He, he leaves Jerusalem under the false pretenses of offering sacrifices to the Lord. He says, I'm going to go to this city and offer a sacrifice to God. I'm going to go to Hebron. That's what he says to the king's court, to Hebron and worship God. But when he arrives in Hebron, he sounds the trumpet of war and all of the people of Israel, all but Judah, they answer the call and they come marching from the north and the west and the east declaring their support for this rebel prince. David and his loyal friends and followers are forced to escape into the into the night into the wilderness and so is he, he goes with his loyal guard most of the standing army and his his mercenary allies but they are a small number a small group remaining loyal to the true King as he crosses through the Mount of Olives weeping while Absalom usurps the throne of Jerusalem prior to chapter 18 the beginning just before it starts Absalom takes counsel with his advisors one Ahithophel, he says, kill the king, kill him, go now while David is fleeing, hunt him down, throw all your effort against him in one decisive blow, ignore the army, go now with whoever you have, find David and kill him, and then the throne will be yours. It was good advice, but Absalom didn't listen. Instead, he took the counsel of an advisor who remained loyal to David, Hushai, who told him, no, 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 don't do that. Wait and muster all the army of Israel and attack. Gather the big army. This is grand council. No slinking around in the dark. One decisive battle. Take the time to assemble the army and then set out after David and meet him face to face, unlike a coward, in the field of battle. And then the kingdom will be yours. It was a great plan. It was very dangerous. David could fortify himself in a city. David was raising an army of his own. Many were flocking to his aid, and his men were each legendary soldiers. But the grandeur of it was too much for Absalom to resist. And so Absalom amasses all of the armies of Israel, hundreds of chariots, thousands of horsemen, tens of thousands on foot. And he brings the might of the nation to bear against her rightful king. They marched across the valley the valley of the river Jordan, and they are fast now approaching the stronghold where David has taken refuge. Meanwhile, David has summoned the remaining army and the men of Judah loyal to him. They've answered the call, arrayed themselves for battle, one that will soon decide the fate of the nation, and now we can begin chapter 18. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out, sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ithai the Giddite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they won't care about us but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send help from the city. The king replied, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Itai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom, his son. And so, the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there on that day was great, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the countryside, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, and Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak tree, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended there between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man, the soldier, said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously with him against his life, and there is nothing that is hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. He says, Joab, you have thrown me under the bus. Joab said, I will waste no time with the likes of you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. Then they took Absalom, and they threw him in a great pit in the forest, and they raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled to his own house. Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no sons to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry the news today. You may carry news another day, but today you will carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son? You'll have no reward for the news. Come what may, I will go. And so Joab said to him, Go. And then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates and the watchman went up on the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. And the watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, Oh, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer, and the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate, See, another man is running alone. And the king said, He also brings news. The watchman replied, I think the one running is of the first is like the running of a as the son of Zadok. The king said, Ah, he's a good man, he will bring good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against the Lord my king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I... I saw a great commotion, but I don't know what it was. The king said, Turn aside and stand here. And so he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told to Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And so the victory that day was turned into mourning for all of the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee on the day of battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son, Absalom, O Absalom, my son. Well, there's the end of the story for the most part, bitter for all involved, of course, but you say, what does this have to do with me or the work of Christ or anything at all for that matter? Well, there are three things I'd like to draw your attention to from this passage, three things from this passage we just read, the dereliction of David, the cursing of Christ, and the giving of our Father. First, see the desolation brought on by David's failure. And we don't even have to go back to the sin between David and Bathsheba to see it. Yes, that was the sin that brought the sword upon David's house. It was adultery and murder, and trouble was promised to him on account of that sin. But I want you to see his failure here as a father. In fact, his failures as a father stem from his past sins. Take what happened between Tamar and Amnon, both his children. What should David have done? He should have brought the law to bear against his eldest son. It was his duty, both as a father and especially as the king. He owed justice to his people, but he couldn't even give it to his own family. What prevented him from doing this? Probably his own sin. Sin had spoiled his conscience. And sin does that. If you're constantly engaged in sin, especially sexual immorality, it has a, a hardening effect on your heart. It corrupts your conscience so that you can no longer deal with sin rightly. You know, my dad doesn't have a lot of feeling in his hands, and uh, I'm, I'm catching up with him with injuries, but I'm not there yet. Now, he. He worked a lot of days in the cold, in the winter, in the night, and his hands would get really cold, and then he'd grab something that was hot, and that would burn it. And and every time that happened, the sensation in his hands would get a little less and a little less and a little less as the nerves were damaged. But hands were numb to the cold, and you didn't really know that they were getting damaged. And now, many years later, after having repeatedly numbed and burned and injured his hands, uh, the sensation of feeling is not what it used to be. Well, those are just hands. And as precious as hands are, Jesus tells His disciples it would be better to cut them off than to allow your heart to be given over to the numbing, callousing, cauterizing effects of sin. And do you realize that this is what happens to your own heart when you persist in sin, especially sexual sin? You, You numb yourself to it and then you're burned by it and then the next time you feel the weight of it, a little less and you become numb to that and it sears your conscience and then you do it again and it sears your conscience again and you continue along this path of sin until you no longer feel anything at all. It's like collecting the hot coals of immorality and storing them close to your heart and with each new coal and new burn until the whole thing is seared and no longer feeling. This has an effect on the conscience. It has an effect on how you Deal with sin and how you think about it. You know, one of the ways it shows itself is an apathy towards sin. You know how apathy shows itself. I, I mentioned sexual immorality because that's what happened to David, but it's with any sin. Any sin that you tolerate, you begin to think, well, it's not that big a deal. Lying. Anger, lust, pride, greed, it just doesn't look so bad anymore. And don't you see that in David? Amnon sexually assaults his sister. But David, who is familiar with the lusts of the flesh, having fallen to it himself, looks on Amnon almost with sympathy and pity, much more so than on Tamar. And it's one of the the evil effects that sin has. We makes, it makes us prone to justify, ignore, or explain away the sins of others if they are sins that we see in ourselves. Nowhere is this more destructive than in parenthood. I mean, how often have you heard or said, well, we did the same thing and it turned out all right for us. Or, well, weren't we the same way at his age or her age? We justify our children in an attempt to justify ourselves. It's disastrous. It leads to more sin. It it never leads to anything good. In David's case, if that weren't enough, he he could have avoided the disastrous rebellion had he pursued the ruthless Absalom. Justice demanded it, and though we're not to take vengeance into our own hands, God had placed the sword in the hand of David the king for that very purpose. David was bound as king to be the arbitrator of justice. And uphold the law of God, even if it meant taking the life of his own murderous son. And even if he were not the king, his responsibility under God would have been to turn the son over. But there wasn't even an attempt made to bring Absalom to justice. I mean, can you imagine, David? I've killed men for less. And I suppose it was a righteous anger that brought it about after what Amnon did to Tamar, after all. And it makes things a little more convenient for me. I'm not going to have to deal with the problem this would create. And then there was that business of mine with Uriah. And God did say the sword would not depart from my household. And you can imagine David justifying the sin of his children because he knows he bears some of the responsibility. But just because David's failures led to the sin of his children does not mean he doesn't have to deal with that sin. It does not mean he isn't disqualified to settle it. And it doesn't mean by not doing so, he's, or by doing it, he would be hypocritical. Don't we think that? Well, I saw this in my child, and, and I, I, I see this in me. Now I see it in my child. It would be hypocritical for me to say, you shouldn't do that when I did it myself. Wrong. Wrong. It would make you no more a hypocrite than for trying to convince your child not to make the foolish mistakes you did in your youth. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, at least before God, is thinking that it's okay for your children to sin because you did the same things. That's hypocrisy. We know better. And I can't help but imagine thought he, uh, that, that David thought he was being loving or gentle or showing compassion. But he wasn't. He was destroying his family. When the Lord said, because of your sin, the sword will not depart from your house, I don't think David realized the sword was placed in his hand. David was the one who brought about the downfall of his house by justifying the sin of his children. Had he dealt with Amnon, as he should have, Absalom would not have been incited. And when Amnon was murdered, if David had sent Absalom to the gallows where he belonged, there would have been no rebellion. But his failure led to unimaginable suffering for his family and his nation. And if you're you're here and you have children or you hope to one day, learn from David. Don't turn a blind eye to the sin of your children because the sin is or was dear to you. It didn't do you any good, and it will not do them any good if it's tolerated. Don't don't justify the sin of your children by saying, I did it too, and I turned out okay. You, You have a responsibility, not as a king, but as a Christian, to teach your children to honor and fear the Lord. And just because you didn't when you were younger doesn't mean your kids get a pass. David did his children no favors by showing them leniency when they needed correction and you won't do yours any good if you do the same. Now, of course, I'm not not talking about childish sins or, or things like that. You don't need to nail them for every little thing. But I am talking specifically about sins that have wreaked havoc in your own life and yet because they were your sins, you overlooked them in your children. Don't do that. Deal with your children Gently, it would be wrong to come at them harshly and angrily and strongly because they have done what you did. But don't ignore it as if it were nothing either. Come to it, deal with it with gentleness in your children. So the fact that you had sin and see the same things things in your own children, it should create in you a kind of gentleness and compassion, but not an apathy or complacency. Raise your children according to the Word of God and fulfill that Word by admonishing them in godliness, especially in areas where you have or may have for a time failed. Well, that's one of the things to see in this chapter. The responsibility of a parent to address sin and not to be lenient because of the sin in themselves. But there's not only a practical parental application here, there is an incredible picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you, you hear me say that and you're skeptical. Corey, I, I heard the whole thing, whole story, and I don't see Christ anywhere. There, there is nothing here that resembles the cross. There, there's nothing here of a, of a sacrificial atonement. There's nothing here of a man laying down his life for others or of a of a sure fortress of protection. No, Passover lamb to propitiate the wrath of God. Where is Christ in this? He is here, suspended between heaven and earth, caught up by his hair, three times pierced by the javelins of Joab. If you want to see the man, see him hanging on the tree, cursed and forsaken by heaven. You say, wait a minute, there's no perfect lamb. That's only a rebellious son. That's only that treacherous Absalom, that that beast of a man who got what he deserved. He died a traitor's death. Nothing could have been too terrible for that ungrateful, god-hating rebel to endure. How can you compare this villain to Christ? Well, you're right. The Son of God deserved none of those things. He was perfect, spotless, and blameless. Do you remember how Absalom was described? From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Just like the sacrificial lambs, perfect in appearance. No physical imperfection in Absalom. And that is how Christ appeared and was. Spotless and without blemish from the bottom of his foot to the topmost hair on his head. Perfect in every way, but far greater than Absalom. Absalom was blameless in his beauty. Christ was blameless in every area of life, body and soul. And yet, what do the Scriptures say? All the sin of our rebellion. Against who? God, our Father and King, was laid upon the Son of God. Jesus Christ, and though He was complacent in none of them, He was stricken for all of them. And Christ was treated like the rebellious Son who rises up against His Father to destroy Him. And Christ was treated like the rebellious One who wars against the King. And He became as wretched as a traitorous Son of David, cursed as a murderer, cursed as one who disregards His parents, cursed as one who Fights against God, cursed as one who flees from God and stirs up dissension, as one who revels in his pride and wages war against the Lord's anointed. Our Savior had done none of those things, but he suffered as if he had done them all. That's the, that's the incomprehensibility of the cross. It's not that a guilty man died; all guilty men die but that an innocent man died as if he were the most guilty of them all. And what you see in the treachery of Absalom, understand that is what was credited to Christ. So what the apostle means when he says he became sin. He suffered as a, as a cursed rebel and a lawbreaker and a usurper and a traitor. Absalom was hung in a tree by his hair, cursed by God, but Christ also hung on a tree, cursed by God you see Absalom and Jesus met the same fate didn't they only our saviors was many times worse it was the puny armor bearers of Joab that killed David's son it was the wrath of God against sin that crushed his own and what was it that brought peace back to God's people What was it that reconciled a treasonous people to their king, to David, in the story we read? The death of his son. When the son was stricken down, all of those with him, the enemies of David, when the war was over, we read of no retaliation. Everyone goes home and serve David once more. They were reconciled by the death of his son. And so you see, even in this villain Absalom, no, we don't see the person of Christ, but we do see the cursing of Christ and get a glimpse of what that means. He was treated in the same way Absalom was even though he had done nothing like Absalom had done. But we also see the grief of a father, don't we? In this passage, you get a glimpse of the tremendous love that God had for his, has for His only begotten Son. You see the anguish of a father giving his most beloved child, his perfect treasure and greatest joy to bring many sons to glory. When the second runner arrives in verse 31 and tells David that the two-faced son who shamed him publicly and sought to take his crown, crown, that he was dead, when that message is delivered, you expect there to be a sigh of relief, don't you? It's good news. It's time to celebrate. It's over. The battle is done. You think David's going to reward the messenger. Instead, what does he do? He breaks down weeping and he goes away and he hides himself because he cannot contain his sadness. He's inconsolable at the loss of his son. He cries out, "Oh Absalom, Absalom, were that I who died instead of you. This is not because it was unexpected or a surprise. David hoped that this would happen. He sent out the armies to bring victory. It was David's plan and his design. He's the one who he is the one who arranged the plans, who mustered the forces. He appointed the commanders and organized their number. He issued the orders. He himself was even about to go out and do battle against his own son himself. And even though everything went according to plan and he won a decisive victory, when the report came back about Absalom, he broke down in tears. Why? Because his son was Precious to him. His son was loved by him. His son was beautiful to him in spite of all of his treachery. And now that son was struck down, killed by bloodthirsty men and buried in a pile of rocks. Now listen to this. If a father like David, so imperfect, and with a love so terribly flawed, if he can care this deeply for a son who hated him, how much greater the pain of searing loss felt by the father of that perfect son who has never done anything but please him all the days of his life. God the Father loves God the Son. And yet, just as David sent out his armies against Absalom, We read in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And so the triumph that unites the nation, that brings reconciliation, it came at a high price. But the higher price, the only thing that could reunite man with God again was the death of his own cherished son. And on that day, victory and sorrow are, are so intertwined, it's hard to distinguish one from the other. Yes, our sin has been defeated once and for all. It's worth rejoicing, and we have been reconciled to God. But the Son of God, whom we love, has perished in the fight. So look now and see the, the heart of our Lord God towards His His Son. Yes. It was His will to crush the Messiah. And yes, it went according to plan. But in David we see in here just a a glimpse of the heart. Is the young man all right? Does he live? Be kind toward him for my sake. And so the victory on that day, on the day when you came to Christ and first heard of the sacrifice given for you and were brought into that relationship with God, The victory, it is victory. You can't call it anything but victory. Was turned into mourning for all of the people. For all the people heard the king is grieving for his son. And the battle the people stole into the city that day as a people ashamed as when they flee in in battle. It's that way for the Christian, isn't it? Haven't you ever rejoiced in sorrow because of Christ? Uh, having a joy, thank you for what you've done, and yet it's mixed strangely with grief? The cross is the darkest, most terrible day the world has ever seen. The Father gave His only Son, but He gave Him so that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. Now have you thought of that? The Father giving. The Apostle Paul thought about it quite a bit. In Romans chapter 8.32, you don't don't have to turn there, I'll read it. Paul, he's, he's meditating on God giving His Son, and he says, what does this look like for the believer? What does it mean that God has done this? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? You want to know if God is for you? to Christ you doubt you question look at what it says he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not graciously give us in him all things all things like abundant life and eternal redemption, forgiveness for sins, unconditional love, inheritance of the earth, victory over sin and increasing in holiness, resurrection bodies, and every other thing God has ever promised. They're yours because of Christ. You see the argument being made. If God did not withhold from you, He did not keep back the One who is of infinite value and immeasurable worth, but gave Him up for us, how then? How can you even entertain the thought that He will withhold all of those lesser, yes, glorious, but lesser things? If the Lord bore the grief that only one who has lost a child knows and subjected himself to that, do not not think that He will withhold any good thing from you. He has already given the greatest, most valuable, and by far exceedingly the best. And if you doubt that He cares for you, or you question how He could love one such as yourself, look to the one hanging on the tree, suspended between heaven and earth all at once, the beloved of God, yet His cursed enemy. This is why you read in Peter when he writes, you were not redeemed with Perishable things, vain, useless things like gold and silver and jewels and diamonds. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as a lamb, spotless and without blemish. You hear that you think, how have I lived today? Absalom died a traitor's death because he was a traitor. Christ died a traitor's death because he died for traitors like us. God sent his son to pay our debt and he paid that debt in full. And it was all at once one of the greatest victories and greatest sorrows. But with that we end, there would be room for much sorrow. But we have a better message than Christ has died for our sins. You say, a better message than that? Yes, a better message than that. Because three days later, he rose from the grave and didn't stay dead. Paul says, if all we have is Christ died for our sins and he is dead, then we above all men are most to be pitied. But we don't have that. And we don't preach a dead Savior. We don't rejoice in a dead Savior, but in a resurrected Christ. We don't worship a man who died 2,000 years ago on a cross. We worship the God-man who rose from the grave, ascended into glory, and sat down at the right hand of God. And we say, okay, well, why does this matter? It matters because if Christ had one blemish or a single spot on His soul, He would have died for His sin and stayed dead, and we all would be lost forever. But He was not like Absalom. He truly was without blemish. He had clean hands and an undivided heart. And he never lifted up his soul to what is false. Always honored and loved his father. Never rebelled him, not even for a fraction of a second, not even in his thoughts. And he lived a life of such virtue, of such perfection, that though he died, death literally could not hold him. It is the resurrected Christ who came to save his people by offering up his life as a ransom for many. And if you see in yourself nothing but treachery toward God, that's how you've been living. You know, Absalom really is a picture of all of us outside of Christ. Rebelling against God, grabbing power wherever we can get it, fighting against him, rejecting him, rejecting his authority over us. If you want to know where, if you could put yourself in this story anywhere, put yourself in the place of Absalom. And understand if you see that in you, Christ came to take your place. It's as if you're hanging in the tree and the spears are about to come and all of a sudden you're you're whisked away and, and replaced. One of the examples I heard. So imagine a dam, and you've probably heard this, a dam a 1,000 miles high and 1,000 miles wide, and, and you're standing there in the foot of it. And behind that dam is, a, is an ocean like the wrath of God ready to, to come down. Imagine if in a moment that dam was pulled away and all the water began to fall. It wouldn't matter how fast you could run. It wouldn't matter how long you could hold your breath. It wouldn't matter if you were an Olympian swimmer. There would be no escape from that deluge of waters. But then just before the waters come, Christ arrives, grabs hold of you, and throws you away. Throws you away that you are now so far away from the crashing waves that not even a drop of water touches your clothes. And yet Christ is crushed under every a blow and wave and torrent. And he endures it all so that you can be set free. Not a drop of that water left for you. You know, it says in the garden when he's praying, let this cup pass from me. It doesn't pass from him. He prays, let this cup pass from me. And, and God the Father says, no, my son, this cup is for you. You must drink it and drink it to the dregs. And when he does and turns the cup over at the end, not a single drop falls out. God's anger against sin, like like the armies of David against this treacherous rebel, totally exhausted on Christ. He came to save traitors and rebels and rejectors. He came to save sinners, to make them clean in God's sight and reconcile them to God. He died in your place and commands all people everywhere, everybody in this room, everybody outside of this room, who is alive today and whoever will live and whoever has lived, the command from Christ is to repent and to believe in His name. Turn to Christ and be saved. Well, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would glorify your name. Lord, what a, what a pitiful presentation of what you have done for us in Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would make up for the great lack, Lord, in it. Glorify your Son in our hearts, Lord, in our thoughts, in a way that is worthy Lord you you have done what is unthinkable for us Lord you have saved us you have redeemed us you have reconciled us we deserve none of those things we never could earn our forgiveness it never could be pleasing to you but you have made us pleasing to you because of Christ and I pray for all of us here, Lord, that we would, we would know what you have done for us so that we would love you more. Lord, we weren't just with a, a scuffed knee that you put a band-aid on. We were dying, Lord, and you gave your life for us. Help us to see it, that our appreciation for you would increase, that we would be more devoted to you, willing to sacrifice for You, that we would say because of what You have done and given us in Christ, nothing is too great to give. Nothing, Lord, we withhold of our possessions or of our persons. Lord, let us give ourselves to You wholly, entirely. And I pray for anyone here who does not know You. Lord, You have come to save the traitors. You have come to save the sinner. And I pray, Lord, that they would turn to your Son. Give them, Lord, the grace to come. Lord, there is so much that could be said. I pray, Lord, that you would be at work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.